Today's episode is brought to you by Ozark Christian College. The Master of Arts Biblical Studies concentration at Ozark is for those who want to study the Bible at the deepest level. Your professors will guide you in the biblical languages and explore different methodologies of interpretation. The Biblical Studies concentration will make the text come alive, saturating you in the Word so that you can be transformed by the Word. So what's the next step? Learn more and apply for free at occ.edu masters. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Disciple Makers Podcast. This is your host, Dave Stovall, and I'm so glad that you clicked on this episode today. This audio was pulled from a track session given by Radical Mentoring at last year's forum. Radical Mentoring is in the business of helping men and women to grow spiritually by using a mentoring process that equips men to develop authentic relationships and overcome the issues holding them back from living life to the full and also by creating a safe and welcoming environment where women can foster authentic relationships with each other and with Jesus. This mentality really lines up with my heart and my passion and is one of the main reasons why discipleship was so attractive to me in the first place. So I hope that you will enjoy these episodes by Radical Mentoring and also that it will help you along your way of becoming a disciple maker. All right, everybody, let's dive in. This is Radical Mentoring. Here we go. Welcome and thank you. I appreciate that you decided to come and hear about uh, mentoring across cultures and generations. I think right now, and just our current cultural climate, and Jim kind of touched on it right now, we live more siloed than ever before. Um, I think a lot of us in this room would agree. It's just like we have the ability to be individualistic. And I think, um, depending on who you read, depending on who you listen to, um, that's really easy for our culture to do because we are a very individualized culture. Um, if you've ever been overseas, I would assume a lot of people have discovered have been overseas since discipleship is their gig and that's what they do. Um, they've been overseas. Um, America is one of the countries that really has an attempt to, to dissolve the family unit. It's like, go get out of my house, like the empty nester phase and things like that. Like we, whereas other cultures, they're much more communal. Um, and that's, one is not better than the other because if you have super communal cultures, then the individual is completely wiped out, right? So there's there's backwards and forwards about that. But for the church to be the church, and I would even argue for discipleship to even be discipleship, there has to be this level of mentoring across generational lines and cultural lines. We can look at the Bible and see that, right? Jesus was a Jewish man. Paul was, you know, there, he ministered to Greeks and Paul ministered to Gentiles and and then the disciples took it to Africa and they took it to China and then eventually came overseas. So like the, 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 the essence of our faith, the, the mission, the mission and the ministry of our faith, it is codependent. It is dependent on us finding out ways to be sending the gospel across cultural and cross generational lines. Um, so I'm really, really, Really grateful that you would trust me with your time. I know time is valuable. So I'm really, really grateful that you would come and, and give that to me. I do not want to miss that opportunity to say thank you. Uh, I'm going to enter into some prayer real quickly, and then we will get started. 
Our Father um, in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy that follows us. We thank you for um, just who you are. We thank you that you're kind, and we thank you that you've given us your word and that you're generous with us, that you've given us Jesus. We thank you that you've given us each other. Um, you're just you're just really good, and, and it's just so evident that you are the one who gives every great and perfect gift, and you do not change. And um, our, our, The generations we come from, the cultures we come from, you put us there, so therefore they have to be good. But when, when those things meet the flesh, they can create some horrible things. And the church is suffering from the culture shock, the culture war, the generational war, Lord. And we want to be a, be a church that loves you and, and everything else comes underneath it. So Lord, would you, would you give me words? Would you continue to work on me in this category? Would you give us wisdom and vision? how to go forward. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice that, that allowed you to pay for our sin and, and thank you for your victory and how you are ruling over everything and that you are the one that we ultimately will answer to. And I pray that we will become more loving in this time. We thank you and, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. So real quick about me. Um, born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I've been married to a wonderful wife, Kyla, for five years. We're spending our first child in April of next year. Um, so, if I look like I have like a glossed, you know, eyes right now, um, is because I've literally for the past four months been going in hyperspeed. We just bought a house. If anyone who has bought a house recently, anybody, if you have bought a house in the past six months, that is a reason to build an Ebenezer unto the Lord. Like, it is absolutely wild. I don't know what it's like where y'all at in Atlanta. You have a week to get your life together. You better be able to throw the money down and get it, get it, get it popping. You know what I'm saying? So a little bit about me. Um, you can't tell. I am biracial. My dad's black. My mom is white. So cultural relevance is, is something or cultural battles identity crisis. This has been my everyday life since I was born. I'm 30 years old. So this is something that I have wrestled with personally within myself. So the past three years of racial turmoil and stress have been wild to process as a biracial man, as a black man, as a white man, as people who have asked you questions, asked me questions. How do I deal with this? What do you do? And they're looking at me for answers. I'm gonna go ahead and tell you this. I don't have all the answers. So if you're coming to me asking for all the answers, I ain't got it. I'm just going to give you a little bit of wisdom, put you on some game. That's all I'm here to do for the next 30 minutes or so is to kind of give you an, a little bit of a challenge. Honestly, it's going to be challenging. Um, also some encouragement and some freedom. Those are my two things. It's a challenge and some freedom um, as we go forward. Like I said, I just bought a house. And whenever you go into a house, my wife, it, it's so funny. It's like, you would think I'm, I'm the visionary in our family. You put my wife in a house and she instantly becomes Joanna Gaines. And she's like, I want to do this. And I want to do that. It's like, when I ask you about these things, you don't got an answer. But whenever you look at this bathroom, for some reason, you have the budget ready. You know, like she is just ready to knock out walls. And like, we're going to do this thing called a, it's called a clothis. Google it. It's actually awesome. You know what I'm talking about. So basically you take a closet and you put shelves in it and it instantly becomes like a mini desk. And yeah, put it, put it in your line item in your budget later. Thank me. It's a city trip. 
Yeah, it's a city trip. My guy, when you have space in the city, you gotta utilize it, all right? So anyway, back to my analogy. I get sidetracked a little bit. So um, when, you're, when, you're, when we're looking at houses, you, you instantly try and think about putting your own stamp on it. How can I make this fit who I am, what I wanna do, and things like that. This whole time, I'm gonna be talking about renovation in that kind of in that kind of context, in that frame of mind, but I'm gonna talk about it in a sense of discipleship and culture, okay? Discipleship is cultural driven, okay? Discipleship is culture driven. Now, what do I mean by culture? Culture is the customs, the arts, social institutions, and achievements of a particular nation, people, or social group. You can Google that, and that's what you're gonna get when you, yeah, when you, when you Google culture, this is what it means. Here's the very short version of that. Culture is what you do all the time. Culture is what you do all the time. Therefore, who you are, your habits, your passions, the institutions that you built in your family, traditions you built in your family, the things that you cheer for, the things that you love, the things that you buy and put in your house, you yourself are your own source of culture, right? You have certain habits, certain customs, certain things that you cheer for, certain achievements that you have that you champion in your house. So building a culture is like building a house. You, you have, when you have, you can change culture if you have a vision for it that's different than the one that already exists. That's why when, one of my favorite examples is, anyone read um, Start With Why by Simon Sinek? Fantastic book. He talks about Apple when, what's his name? Who founded Apple? Steve Jobs, my God, guys. <laughs> Steve Jobs, when he founded Apple and he started, he left and went to Pixar, and when he, when he left, Apple fell to pieces. Like, it just lost value, the stock went down, is because when he was the primary driver of culture in Apple, and when he left, the culture stagnated and it shifted, and it wasn't what it was supposed to be. We, as church leaders, as lay people, we can be the drivers of culture, of difference, inside of our churches and our institutions if we're willing to do a renovation. And the reason why these things don't happen, trigger warning, if you ever heard this from the news, this is why this doesn't happen. Who here has heard of culture war? The main thing that drives Christians apart is they participate in this foolishness. I'm gonna go ahead, they participate in this foolishness. Their goal is to win the culture war and not renovate the cultures that they're already in. This is why you can hop on Twitter and people who say they love Jesus on Sunday morning will say the wildest things on Twitter. They'll say the post the most ridiculous, and this infuriates me more than anything because they'll, they'll say things, oh, they say things in a joking manner, but don't understand who they're ultimately sinning against. It's not me. They're sinning against the Lord. If God was watching you as you got Twitter fingers going a million miles an hour, what, how would you edit your tweets? But we don't think about this because our primary function is I need to beat you. I need to win this argument. We participate in culture wars instead of renovating our own hearts, our own affections, our own churches. We are so tied to our cultures that are bigger than Jesus than anything else. We are tied to our cultures that are bigger than Jesus than anything else. What are some examples about that? Something that's not as, you know, heavy. Braves baseball. Braves just won the World Series. 
Atlanta's been waiting for a World Series for a very, very long time, 1995 to be exact. I know a lot of people who stayed up all night watching the games. I'm not one of those people. I am 75 years old at heart. I went to bed at 9 o'clock, and I watched the last game, and I was perfectly fine with it. Right? I love it. Cheer on Braves baseball all you want. That's great. Something that's a little bit more intense. Politics. God forbid someone mentions anything about Biden. God forbid someone mentions anything about Trump. I don't care who you voted for in the last election. I'll be honest with you, that's not what I'm here to talk about. What I am talking about is where is your ultimate allegiance? That's going to determine your culture. That's going to determine what it is you champion. So if our ultimate allegiance is to our party, then those are the things that we're going to champion. Those are the institutions we're going to build. Those are the habits that we're going to create and form in our discipleship, in our ministries, in our programs. And it's so, so sneaky because the devil does not tell, he does tell whole lies, but for mature, air quote, air quote, like crazy, mature believers, the big lies won't get you. It's the subtle crossovers of the Venn diagrams that get you. I'll be fully, fully honest. As a black male, justice is very, 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 very important to me. When George Floyd's sentence came out and Derek Chauvin's sentence came out, I went from ecstatic to tears like that. It was this moment of justice that I needed for closure and I was excited and I instantly wept. So that's full disclosure. And, and stereotypically, the left champions social justice, right? But social justice has its limits inside the bounds of scripture. There are certain lines that I cannot cross. I have these conversations with my wife all of the time, all of the time, right? That's another example. As far as, uh, I'll use the rise example. The right, the culturally, the right is more conservative, right? More fiscal, fiscally more conservative. There was tons of wisdom in scripture about money and how we should use our money, right? But there's also tons of scripture about greed, right? So there is wisdom in being, being fiscally conservative. And yes, you reap what you sow. But also there is tons in scripture about generosity. So... As a, as a Christian, which culture am I going to fight for? Based on the grounds of scripture, I cannot align myself strongly in either camp. I just can't do it. Now, again, there's caveats in everything that I'm saying, and I understand that because there's a personal decision that has to be made. The question that I'm asking you, and Jesus asks us in, in Luke 14, is where is your ultimate allegiance? Where is your affection at? Right? Luke 14, uh, verse 25 through 27, he says, large crowds are traveling with Jesus and turning to them. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and yes, even his own life. All right. So let's just pause right there. In the law, the Torah, Jesus, even he himself is the law embodied, right? The word came flesh. He says, honor your father and mother, right? So he can't mean literally hate your father and mother. He can't mean it. He says, love your brother as yourself, right? Mm -hmm. He can't mean hate your brother. 
Uh, so we have to use a little bit of hermeneutics there to kind of be like, okay, what? You just, you know, so he's not contradicting himself. And he says, he tells us to love our neighbor as our self. So obviously he's not telling me to be harmful to myself, right? But, he's, but let's continue. He says, such a person cannot be my disciple. That is the qualifying statement. That is the qualifying statement. When he says, such a person cannot be my disciple. He is saying, if you love all of that more than you love me, you cannot follow me. Not eh, kind of, no, definite, period, imperative. You cannot do it. One, he talks about with money, one, you will champion one master and you will hate another, right? So the question that he is asking us and the first thing that we have to renovate is our affections. The first thing we have to renovate is our affections. What do I, what makes me angry? Does it make me angry that, does it make me, does, does BLM make me angry more than the injustices of the widows and the orphans? My wife and I one time were going to a game. We're going to, I think, Atlanta United game, soccer team in Atlanta. And there were some people who are picketing because for some reason, like the the people who picket, who are from those churches, and they have the you know whatever, they are really in tune with sports schedules, like because they are at every single game. Like I don't know how they just like who's playing tonight. Onward, you know that that is their thing, and we're walking. You're laughing, it's true. We were walking toward, or leaving actually, and they're saying the things like, going to hell, yada, yada, yada. And there is this homeless woman and her child on the street. And it cracked me open. Because what's happening is that this is this moment of the gospel where I feel like Jesus was like, the Pharisees are here, and then this is what the gospel is, to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. There's this, this, this juxtaposed position, and all of these people, the only thing that they hear is they think this is what Christianity is. And there's this moment where I'm like, I remember walking by and thinking to myself, well, what, about, what about them? What do you hate more? Do you hate more that these people are walking away from Jesus, or do you hate, like, what do you hate more, that they're looking at porn, or do you have this moment, like, where, where are you looking at? Because here's what Jesus would, Jesus would be, right? And that, that's, that's what I, I'm trying to uh, uh, challenge you with, is we have to first, if we're trying to engage culture and engage generations, right, we have to renovate our affections, and we have to do a deep dive into our affections. What do I love? more than what Jesus loves. Old saints will call it, there's orthodoxy. Americans are really, we, whoo, we love reading. Orthopraxy, practice, or, uh, orthopraxy, so proper belief, proper action. There's a third one, anyone know what it is? Orthopathos, proper emotion. Ortho, uh, orthodoxy, proper belief. We got a lot of the theological police out there. Proper practice, there's where the Pharisees are at. Proper feeling or the pathos. Proper emotion. Does your heart break for what break God's heart? Does God want people to come with him for eternity? Absolutely. But does God equally care about the widow? Yes. That is true religion according to scripture. 
right? <clears throat> we cannot love others, institutions, things so much that they supersede my affections for Jesus. I am struggling with this right now. My wife and I, we got into probably the most productive argument that we've ever been in in the five years we've been married. Meaning nobody cried, we said we needed to say, we reconciled, and we still said it loudly. Everything was fine. Um, and she was, it was about family boundaries. Um, shout out to Henry Nowen, who writes a fantastic book on boundaries. If you haven't read it, you should read it. Um, and she was, you know, I come from this, I was born out of wedlock. I come from a very dysfunctional family. So holidays are a big stress point because I'm first born. I'm the only child. So therefore everything runs through me. And she's like, what are you going to do about it? And her big fear was that I was going to forsake her and love my family more than I was going to love her. And she challenged me and she pressed me on it. Who are you going to love more? Who are you going to trust more? Who are you going to fight for? Who are you when you're making disciples? Are you going to disciple them and bring them into a home that has not been renovated, that has not been checked? What about your convictions? What do you fight for? What do you? I'm, life matters. All of life matters, right? No one's saying that pro-life and, and is more is le less important than justice. It's life. Jesus is pro-life. Life, entirety of life. He's not. He cares. He knitted them in the womb and numbered their days, right? We cannot care about just, he just did this. And it's like, what? He numbered their days too. He wants everyone to have freedom, everyone to have joy, everyone to have flourishing. Who do we care about? What do our affections say? What do our actions say about our affections? And like with any renovation, it costs money. It costs something. It costs something. It's like my we're looking at yard like for some reason I don't. It might be just like when you become a dad, and when you buy a house. I don't know what equation this is, but instantly you care about landscaping. I don't know what it is. Like I have no clue. What I, we went to the backyard of the house we just bought. I was like, yeah, I'm gonna extend the porch right here, and then I'll put a fire pit. Over there, now I gotta get a lawnmower because you know these lines have to be straight. Hey, can you text your brother and t or your brother, uh, my brother-in-law, and ask him about tools? It was like instantly. It was like I need a Home Depot membership. I need all. I need all of these things, right? All of those things, sadly, cost money. Uh, verses twenty through thirty. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, or a fire pit, or a porch, it's a house. Take that word out. Whatever it is you want to put in there. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are unable to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. You, you know what I would let me continue, then because there's more to it. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with ten thousand men to oppose the one coming against him with twenty thousand? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Change always comes with a cost. Is it worth the change? Here's, here's what this looks like in real time. After George Floyd was murdered, um, the blackout, the black square thing came up, right? And... Um, 
I had a friend of mine who we're actually not friends anymore. The sad thing is I officiated his wedding. And he kept just digging at me about this. And eventually I said, I, I can't talk to you anymore. Like this is causing me like pain. This is not even healthy. I haven't talked to him in a year. And this is a friend that we have been friends for almost a decade. I officiated his wedding. He was a groomsman at my wedding. And um, we talked about our kids becoming friends and he just had a son. I'm about to have a daughter. Like we, this was not just, oh, I talked to you on Instagram every once in a while. This was like someone I had like lived at his house. And what he communicated to me was that, and he hasn't talked to me since, that our friendship was not worth the cost of his change. And I use that black square because a lot of the people that I know have posted that black square and have said nothing else about anything regarding justice, mercy, uh, Jesus. They're just, they counted the cost and they posted it and that's all they were willing to pay and did not see the total cost that was have to be made and now people in, in, in my friend group at my church um, who, are, who, who love justice and mercy, we're like, we can't, we don't trust you because you aren't willing to pay the price and pay the cost and make the sacrifices in order to make room for all people. You did that just to make yourself feel better. So when we're talking about renovating our affections and counting the cost, the builder and the king both had to look at what they had, take a stock of what they had, and ask themselves, am I willing to give this up in order to love Jesus fully? Now, here's not what, I, here's what I'm not saying. You all of a sudden have to become a social justice warrior, and that's, that's not what I'm saying. I don't know your personal life. I don't know what it is that's going on. In, in your life, in your heart, and what's going on, and what you care about, and things like that. That's me. That's me. I'm, again, I'm a biracial man. My mom is white, my, black, my, my dad is black. Like, you can't sway me anyway. Like, I have people like, yeah, you're down for the cause. It's like, if that means I have to hate my mother, I can't do that. She's my mom. <laughs> so my wife is white. Like, my daughter's gonna be white. Like, I, like that's not what that means. I'm using that that example because that is the example that is most near and dear to my heart. And that is the biggest example for the history of our nation. The point that I'm that I'm really driving home is what does that look like for you? What is the renovation that needs to go in your affections, that needs to go on in your church? Is that does that what what is the culture of the discipleship in your church? Is it more for methodology? Is it more for a set of rules? I heard a pastor say one time, Jesus is not going to ask us when we go to heaven what the catechisms are. He's, yeah, he's like, ah, did you know your bylaws? Well, how'd you vote in the last meeting? Right? You know what I'm saying? He's not going to ask us that. He's like, did you feed, did you give me water? Did you give me food? Did you give me clothes? Did you feed my sheep? Did you love your neighbor? Like, there are things that he's going to ask us that we are extremely passionate about. And there are things that he's not going to ask us that we are like, we will burn something down for that have nothing to do with the kingdom of God. So when I say renovation, counting the cost, what do you care about? What are you passionate about? What is it that gets you going? Is it Jesus-centered? Or is it a civilian affair that really your tribe really cares about and has nothing to do with the kingdom of God?
if we're going to be a disciple makers that are able to cross cultures and to cross generations and really make an impact for the kingdom of God, then we have to have the same mindset as Paul did, whereas I counted all nothing compared to the, to the joy of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. It's just not as important. I was in the Presbyterian church for a long time, was actually trying to become a Presbyterian pastor. And there were just things, and there's nothing, again, there's nothing wrong with PCA as far as the, 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 the emphasis they put on becoming a pastor. But it turned into performance and having allegiance to a tribe that was ultimately killing me. And if we want to invite people into our lives to be, to be discipled, the best analogy that I've heard is like an elephant inviting a giraffe over and expecting the giraffe to be comfortable. The house isn't built for him. The house isn't built for the giraffe. So the elephant thought, was like, well, I invited him over. It's like, yeah, you feel better about that. But if you really loved the giraffe, you would have paid the money, blown the roof off, made it higher, widened the doors, gotten a bigger couch. And that takes time. It takes money. It takes sacrifice. But what that communicates is to the giraffe is, I'm getting it's coming, is you made room for me. You made room for me. And I know it cost you something. It wasn't just, oh, this is easy. No, it you lost friends. You lost your denomination. You lost your ordination. You lost money. You lost time. And you made room for me. That's not just race, that's generations. Millennials, sometimes we just need to shut up. Like, shut up. There are people older than us who know, who have suffered longer, who have walked with Jesus for 20 years and know what they are talking about. Do you love your relevance more than you love honoring those who came before you? You know, like, so, so there's, so it's not just race. It's general, it's like, that's how we build those bridges is we consider what do we love more than this? Am I world willing to get rid of it? How much is it going to cost me? Make the choice to go do it and stick with it. Make the choice to go do it and stick with it. And then maybe we can share in the sufferings and know the sufferings of Jesus a little bit more and then our relationships with him would deepen. Hello, Disciple Makers Podcast listeners. I want to invite you to the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum here in Nashville, Tennessee on October 5th and 6th. Jesus had a strategy, a plan, and a roadmap for making disciples. In other words, he was highly intentional. He guided, coached, and developed his disciples into full-on disciple makers. And by living out the Great Commission, they changed the entire world. We're constantly gaining new insight about intentional discipleship as we look closely at Jesus. And if we're thoughtful and prayerful, we can apply many of those same practices today. So head on over to discipleship.org to buy your tickets for the 2022 National Disciple Making Forum. I look forward to seeing you there. Wow. I got 20 minutes. Man.
man. Man, that's great. I'm so proud of me. Guys, I'm super long-winded. So the fact that I got that done in 20 minutes is, is a miracle in and of itself by the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah, I'm, hey, I'm an open book. You can literally ask me anything uh, for Q&A. And we got till 45, so we got 20 minutes. If you got nothing, you got nothing. It's perfectly fine. I got a question. What's up? What is the difference between mentoring and discipleship? Honestly, to me, it's just semantics. Okay. To me, it, it it's more of a heart dedication than it is um, than you know. Some people will fight me about it and they'll try and give me you know a biblical you know synopsis of the Bible says discipleship, so therefore we should say discipleship. Uh, to me, mentorship and discipleship are interchangeable. It, but what is not interchangeable is the dedication of the mentor or the disciple to the mentees and disciple, like the disciples. Ultimately, I'm being mentored and discipled by Jesus. Therefore, I'm passing down that to the people who choose to, to follow me and um, follow, ultimately follow him. My favorite, my favorite description of, or image of discipleship is when John's disciples run away from John to go follow Jesus. And John is like, get out of here, go. Literally, that is like, get out of the way. If you can, you can do that in mentorship and discipleship. Get out of the way. Go follow him. That's what that's what I would say to that. So you spoke a lot about changing individual culture. Mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to uh, changing the culture of your tribe? Yeah, yeah. Most effective practice. Um, that's a great question. The first thing. I would look at is who is in my tribe because um, frankly when it comes to things like this a lot of people don't want to change and that's just kind of that's like the first thing you have to accept like there's gonna be a chance nobody's gonna change and I have to be okay with that because it is not ultimately me who changes people but it is the Holy Spirit convicting people to change people um, which is why we have to be very careful that we're not trying to convert people to opinions, but like what's, what is scripture? You know what I'm saying? Um, which is why I use both examples of like justice and mercy, wisdom and discernment. Like there, there are things on both sides of our political, I'll use politics because that is where we're at as a country where we have political religions now. Like that is where we're at, you know, and both of them are not perfect. Both of them miss the mark. And we can get fooled into thinking one is better than the other because it holds to what we agree to. Now, so the big thing is, it's gonna come back to, it's like, who is in my tribe? Then the second thing is, are they willing to have a conversation? And then, and what am I doing to physically show the difference? Um, and figure out if they don't want to make a change, why? So a lot of times it's fear. A lot of times it's shame. I think a lot of white people in particular, as far as race is concerned, feel a lot of shame. And I hate that. I hate that. I never want to shame anybody into changing their mind. I want to love and plead for someone to change their mind. And I think shame is a horrible tactic in anything. Um, at the same time, again, I'm biracial, so it's really hard to peg me either way. Um, a lot of my black brothers and sisters just don't feel heard don't feel cared for, they don't feel seen um, or, mis or understood. 
perfect example. I go to a cross-cultural church, so therefore we sing anywhere from Hillsong to, you know, Fred Hammond on a on a Sunday morning. You ever listen to Fred Hammond? And they said, oh, uh, Fred Hammond is that guy. Um, so whenever I walk into a worship service, um, I listen to the worship that's being sung, and what and it kind of tells me kind of where things are going to go. This is one of the first things that I notice. Whenever I'm in a room, I texted my wife earlier. I said, I'm probably one of two maybe black speakers here. It's one of the first things that I notice. You know? Um, so it, that's the world that I live in. I'm painfully aware of that. And it's like, do your people or your tribe want to know what that experience is like? Do they want to know? Do they want to know what it's like to um, have someone, you know, lock their car door when you walk by it. You know, I have to talk to my kids about race when they, whenever they get older. I have, I have to have that conversation. I don't want to have that conversation. Trust me, don't want to have it, but I have to have it. You know, I, Kyle and I live in the city. Part of the reason is exposure is like more people of color live in cities and my daughter is going to be white, but she's also going to be black. And I want to, one of the things that I didn't like was that I was not exposed because I grew up in primarily white spaces. So it, I, I use all of those examples as those are changes that we are making. And it's like, if people are like, hey, I'm curious, that's the thing. I'm curious, why are you doing that? I'm willing to understand. Willingness is like almost 95% of the battle. Who's my tribe? Are they willing to listen? Are they willing to change? And if they're not, and they're so caught up in idolatry, and, and loving things, Romans 1, loving created things over loving Jesus, I, and they're just entrenched in that, there is nothing that I can do. Only Jesus can burn idols. Nothing I can do about it. And I say that with like grace and mercy and experience and worked through the pain of that. That's not me like throwing caution to the wind. It's like, forget you guys. Like, no, it's like, again, one of my best friends, we don't talk anymore. And if you asked him, he would give you a different reason why. If you ask me, I'd give you a different reason why. That's perspective. But, you know, it's, it's hard. This is so difficult because it costs you something. It costs comfort. It costs power. It costs money. It costs, you know, ch change. Like, anyone's, you know, deep friendships or marriage, it's like, you've got to figure out what am I getting rid of? Like, what am I willing to give up for this, for the sake of someone else? That's one thing in discipleship we always forget. It's not a self-help project. It's not a project self-project. It's always for the sake of somebody else, for the sake of your brother and sister, for the sake of the glory and name of God. It's always for somebody else. So, yeah, that was very long-winded because that's, that's, that's a question that I still try and find answers to. That's not get out of that situation if it doesn't work. And honestly... I've gone to therapy and have done a lot of work in that. And sometimes when you're in abusive relationships, the best thing that you can do is get out of it. And that's hard and that sucks, but you always have to be willing to have that conversation first. And if there's no repentance, no sign of giving it up, no sign of change, I have to say that it's probably not worth it. Again, it's for the sake of the other, for sake of loving you, loving them and loving Jesus. It's never out of bitterness. It's like, I can't love you, I can't love myself, and I can't love God in this situation. 
I've got my own, sorry. Hey, I'm, hey, you got it, man. So I've been working with, I've been trying to do discipling and I've noticed that there's differences in commitment levels mm -hmm. across, say, younger people and yeah. older people. For sure. And so I guess here's my question. And even goes into where you grew up, mm -hmm. what, your, what your background was, mm -hmm. but is there strategies that you guys have come across to enable consistent accountability across different cultures and socioeconomic backgrounds? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, is there strategies for uh, helping to build consistency around socioeconomic and cultural backgrounds? Yeah, consistent accountability. Consistent accountability. Yeah, because I, I feel like, for example, some of the people I work with, our transportation challenge. Yeah, hundred percent. Other people I work with are just time challenged. Like yeah. Time or yeah. So it's like, how do I how do I make something that's consistent and an accountability that is fair to all? Where I'm not giving this person a pass because my time is valuable, but mm -hmm. at the same time, I know one person has more barriers mm -hmm. to get to this spot. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm trying to narrow it down. No, that's great because what you what you just asked is such a font like a fundamental and powerful question because what you just talked about is power because you talked about ability and in ability to do something freely is power and time transportation opportunity that that's a great privilege to have and especially when you start talking about socioeconomic issues which is another. That's another power struggle that I didn't even talk about. It's like when you start talking about socioeconomic, that is probably one of the big, that's, that's a big one because I live in the city and I see people who are socio, like who have come from different socioeconomic backgrounds and things like that. So whenever I talk about opportunity and power, again, when you, when you look at Jesus, he had all of the power and used his power to the benefit of the other person. So as a person, I first I have to ask myself, point one is who is able? Are they able or am I able? Great. I am able. How much time do I actually have? I have this amount of time. Those automatically build boundaries on who I am able to see and what I'm able to do. And then we have to look at the thing about Jesus that I think I just recently have discovered is like Jesus was not able to be with everybody all of the time. And that sucks. Because, you know, we want to be able to do as much good as possible, but that does not mean we're going to be able to be available for everybody. Now, I'm not saying Jesus did this intentionally where he chose the best, the best bang for his buck, but we're not God. So therefore, we can't think as if we have infinite amounts of time. So I would say, what, how many barriers can I remove effectively for them with the time and energy that I have? Right. We've talked about it with groups who are, who are all in the same socioeconomic class. So let's throw that out. They have the same issue. They still have to work around schedules, yeah. kids, work, like all of those things. And as the mentor's job to take all of that in consideration is how can I build the best strategy to get the most out of these guys? It's the same thing. But now you're dealing with the power balance is different because right. you have the opportunity and they don't. But Jesus leveraged what he had for the sake of those who are less fortunate. What you're experiencing, I believe, is the, the limits and boundaries of that. It's like, I can't do this for everybody. So which forces you to make the hard choice of like, what am I able to do? 
and how can I trust Jesus with what I'm not able to do? Maybe that means a guy that I'm mentoring and discipling, we split the load. It's like, hey, I can reach these guys. Can you reach these guys? That's when you invite somebody in, and now it becomes now you're blessing him with the opportunity to serve in a different opportunity to serve in a different capacity. So it, it takes more creativity and it takes more work. And I, and I can't give you another option where it doesn't take more work on your behalf. But that's what happens when you're, there's a power and availability imbalance. Is the person that has the ability and has the power has to be able to make the decision for the sake and and do it for them. That's why I use that renovation analogy is because if you have the income to make the renovation, why don't you spend the money to make the renovation so that the person that you love can come in? That's how you should love to people is by sacrifice. I'll say one thing too is is the time. It takes time to do the renovation. So it takes time when you're crossing cultures and generations Mm -hmm. to put, like you mentioned earlier, the consistency instead of just popping in and popping out. Yeah, man. Consistency is probably the biggest one. I think... You know, it, it, it's just with with people who have suffered hardship, it can be poor people, people of color, mentally mentally ill, it can be anything, just put hardship there, put anybody in that category. The things that make it harder is just the inconsistency of people around them. I, I, we worked at a church, my wife and I, and the director of community outreach, different than campus outreach, community outreach is more service oriented. She, she said this, and it rocked my brain about people who are homeless. And she said, think about all of the relational breakdown that has to happen for someone to be homeless. They have no friends. They have no family. They have no job. They have no one in their vicinity who can take care of them. So everyone in their life has been, they've either been inconsistent or people around them have been inconsistent. So consistency, we say this all the time is consistency over time is what's going to bring them. So what am I able to do over time? What am I able to do over time that's going to mean something, that's going to build and invest in the kingdom? That's flashy, not like, I'm, I'm going to use this, don't hire the black guy just to hire the black guy. Like, don't do that. Like, don't hire the Asian guy just to hire the Asian guy or the, or the Hispanic woman just to hire the Hispanic woman. That's a one-off. That's making the post and keeping it moving. Make room. Give power. Give things away. Help them. Like, where is your money going? I can. Add, that's the first. Where's my money going? Do we need a new gym? <laughs> like, real talk. Like, do we need that? Or can we use this to invest in this community in a different way? That, like, that is radical. That is, no. And guess what's going to happen? The person of power in your church or in your community is going to be like, I gave you money for this reason. Why aren't you doing that? Are you willing to take that hit, to take that cost? That's a cost. That's a relational cost. It costs things to be disciples. It costs things to do things of mercy and justice. It costs things to cross party lines. It costs things to disciple someone from a different community. It costs things to come up underneath a generational leader. It costs comfort, power, energy, time, opportunity, right? Let's bring even close to home. The amount of stories, I know you've heard them too, of dads taking promotions for the sake of money and then they are completely stripped out of their homes and they don't know their kids is staggering to me. But if I love Jesus, 
right? And I, and I believe that he will provide for my family. The cost of me knowing my family is not worth the extra 10 grand that I'm going to make this year. It's just not worth it. That, that is where it's opportunity, it's power, it's time, it's a promotion. Those are the things that we're sacrificing. So it, it, that's the big thing. If there's anything that we can really gain from this is that to build bridges and cultural and generational discipleship, it's going to cost you time, power, opportunity, money. It's going to cost you something that are precious. Is it worth it? What do I love more? What do I love more? What do I love more? What do I love the kingdom? Do I love the kingdom? Do I love the kingdom? Do I love Jesus? Do I love what Jesus loves? Do I love what Jesus loves? Do I love what Jesus, I can't, I've said it 15 times. Do I love what Jesus loves? And if, if what I think Jesus loves looks exactly like me and it's comfortable and everything is awesome, I might need to reassess what I think Jesus loves. If everything is awesome and it looks just like me and it agrees with me all of the time, I need to reassess what Jesus loves, what I think Jesus loves. If you have not, I've happened to me all the time, walk down the hallway, wherever you're at, and the Holy Spirit just hits you with something for no reason, like you just mind your own business, and the Spirit just disagrees with you about something, that, yep, yep, that's what life is like. He kind of disagrees with you all the time. Does that ever happen to you? You just, yeah. just like, man, I wasn't even thinking about that. Why you got to bring that up? Yep. That's Jesus. <laughs> it's completely counterintuitive to what I was feeling and experiencing. So, hey, thank y'all so much for yeah, listening. Yeah, I appreciate y'all. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening. I just want to remind you before I sign off here to mark your calendars for October 5th and 6th for this year's National Disciple Making Forum. You can buy tickets at discipleship.org. And I want to encourage you to come back for the next episode as we continue to hear more from Radical Mentoring. All right, everybody, have a great day.